Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Really excited to have Steve Jordans on the show today. Steve is a professor of psychology at University of Toronto. Steve's also the director of the Advanced Learning Technologies Lab. He's a really fascinating speaker. I've seen his uh, talks online a bunch, and I was fortunate enough to be in a webinar with Steve recently. Uh, we got plenty to talk to Steve about, but before we get to any of that, I just want to welcome Steve to the show. So Steve, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you. Great to be here. I, I feel like I've made it now. <laughs> exactly. This is it. You've truly arrived. We always like to begin by getting to know our guests a little bit more. I like to talk about their origin story. What got you to this point in your career? Yeah, sure. So I, I was born in a small military base in Israel, kind of multicultural. It was a British Air Force base in Germany, and I have uh, Canadian parents of Dutch descent. Wow. So I'm multicultural if you count yeah. parts of Europe as multicultural. As a graduate school, I studied memory and human consciousness. So I was a cognitive psychologist doing a lot of real lab-based kind of work, mm -hmm. and I quite enjoyed it. But then I started teaching, and I love teaching. Yeah. I, I absolutely, the whole experience was fantastic. And over time, I started to think that's where I wanted my research to be, too. And, and especially because I was teaching large classes, online classes. So yeah. I was really playing with that technology envelope. Mm -hmm. And that made me really want to think, how can we up our game uh, yeah. in this context? Which led to that lab being created, the Advanced Learning Technologies Lab. And, and basically what we do there is we scour the educational psych literature for things that seem to work. Uh, yeah. And we try to embody them in technologies so that they can be scaled, used at scale. And we do a whole lot of research on the tech as mm -hmm. we do it to just to make sure it works like we say, and yeah. it's usable, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so, yeah. It's a, so it's a real fun lab. And, and now suddenly with e-learning, the thing, it's, it's right. like we're in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm trying to think of the right fable or fairy tale that this is analogous to. Maybe it's Cinderella, right? It might be a Cinderella story where e-learning had always been keeping it real, focused on the future of learning. And there is some opportunity to find the people who know what's going on a little bit more, mm -hmm. like yourself, and then lean on them to help us get further faster. Yeah, there's a fun analogy I like to throw out there that, that I haven't heard that commonly said now, but it's in the COVID world, we say we want the medical experts and the scientists to lead. Yeah. And we want the leaders, the politician type leaders to take a bit of a backseat. Yeah. And these people who are in the online world, and especially in the centers of teaching and learning, mm -hmm. they are about the science of learning. They've known the challenges of online learning for some time. Mm -hmm. They've taken them very seriously. They've done research and such to try to find yeah. you know, optimal methods. They've been doing that for a long time. And, and I would love to see universities have that same mentality where, mm -hmm. at least in terms of the online offerings, that, that suddenly these people who know the science of learning yeah. are given a little bit of a leadership role to help guide all the all my other, my other analogy, all the new immigrants right. <laughs> that are now coming from the traditional education world mm. and, yeah. and thrown into the online world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think we were likening it to a bit of a stampede at one point, too. That, again, took me to the plains of the Serengeti. And suddenly, the non-digitally fluent instructors were just rambling through. It was a tough spring. And just getting through, that's why the point about social-emotional well wellness yeah. is so critical nowadays. How has that come into play really over the years when you're thinking about advanced learning technologies? You also talked about embodying technology so like wearing it and making it human and connected 
One of the, the primary passions I have in this space is trying to push us to take skill development much more seriously. We've been very good at, I think, transmitting information to students for a long time. Mm -hmm. But even before COVID, we knew that their success was ultimately determined by their ability to do things like think critically and think creatively, yep. communicate, yep. those sort of human interaction. For me, the ultimate thing I think about with my students sometimes is them sitting in an interview. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the ultimate test they have in the real world. Yeah. Can they, you know, impress people? Can they interact with a way yeah. where that person talking to them says, hey, I want them part of our team. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking ahead to that and have been for a long time and have been trying to think how, for example, with my 1600 student intro to psychology class, which is right. what I teach, yeah. how can you work with a class like that and, and start working on those skills, at least at a foundational level. Mm -hmm. uh, and how can technology help you do that 1600 students at a time? Yeah. So I've been wrestling with that for a few years already, simply because I love these large classes. And so yeah. it's the question is how to be effective. But now, of course, this is a, a central problem in general because students used to get a lot of practice with those skills in the hallways, right. uh, in their student-to-student -student interactions. Mm -hmm. And now it's such a sterile world where they're sitting in front of their computer and sometimes just listening. And so that's suboptimal. And, and I think we really need ways to humanize and connect students. And, and I think that's a great challenge that we'll have going forward is to make e-learning warm and fuzzy and, and to make the people who engage in it better at interacting in the sort of ways you do every day, just interacting with strangers and talking right. and, and trying to have a great conversation. Yeah, exactly. The, the behaviors that you have to get very specific about are very different than what we traditionally learn in school. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So one of the technologies that we have that I like a lot is something called Peer Scholar. And the way it works is the following. Students are first given some task, compose something and whatever you want to do. And so they do that and submit it. But then it's all about them learning first to give feedback to peers. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. And so we're putting them right in the role and we're saying, you know what, we're going to promote you to the teacher role now. Mm -hmm. And you're going to see what some of your peers submitted anonymously. Mm -hmm. And we want you to critically analyze each piece and to ultimately give this peer some idea of how they can improve their work. Yep. And this is a hard thing, by the way. And so we get a real opportunity for teaching them, well, what does good feedback look like? So we include some micro learning. Uh, but the important thing is they learn and then they immediately practice in a real world context. Yeah. And as I'll get to in a moment, they're eventually going to get feedback on their feedback. Yeah. Uh, and so they're going to be able to see the impact that their words had on others um, mm -hmm. down the road just to flesh out that process. The second step, they're giving feedback. But then the third step, they've received a bunch of feedback on their own work. Yeah. And really a critical communication thing that we don't talk about enough is the ability to shut up and listen. Oh my God. Uh, somebody else. <laughs> my wife may have mentioned that on occasion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that notion of active listening, it's hard when people are criticizing us because when they're criticizing us, it feels like an attack. Mm -hmm. When we feel like we're being attacked, we want to fight. Yeah. Or flee. Mm -hmm. Educators, we want people to sit, think, and learn. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not natural. And so once again, we can really walk them through this process. We make them analyze the feedback so we know they engage with it, ask them a bunch of questions. Yeah. Uh, and then ultimately, we even ask them questions about 
the quality of the feedback. Did this person, how was, we taught you what good feedback looks like? Do you think they did? And so they're getting a really rich idea of, of communication from both sides mm-hmm. and, and the emotional impact that when someone is overly critical, they, they feel it. And mm-hmm. I'll often get them to acknowledge those emotions. Uh, and it's all in a, a real context because ultimately, they're going to get all this uh, feedback and then they're going to be given the chance to improve their work before the prof sees it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they can actually use this. And that's a really critical thing because what students tell me over and over again is, wow, this was a lot of work. But when I actually corrected, fixed my thing and looked at it, it was better. Right. And when I knew it was better, it was worth it all. Right. Um, and right. so they're learning what Carol Dweck would call that sort of growth mindset, yep. that idea of, Nothing's ever done. Everything can always be improved. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we work against ourselves with our deadlines. We sure. get this impression that when it's done. Yeah. Uh, and so that's the kind of context and what it feels like to students. We've shown that it enhances their sense of community I would because think. they feel like, okay, I'm in a 1600 student class, mm-hmm. but suddenly I'm in this community of five or six students who are trying to help each other. Yeah. And, and that's it's almost a Socratic kind of experience for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they really feel like that makes them more connected to the other students. Yeah. Now, I do want to point out that there's a real difference between that in the sense that it's not real time and it's not face to face. So it's a little away from that interview, which is the ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. But this is how you can lay the foundations with digital experience and you can get them thinking critically about what they're listening to and, and right. thinking creatively about how it can be better. Yeah. Um, and when they get the sort of foundations of those skills, then I think they're better ready for experiential learning or something where they're actually they're using them in the real world in real right. time. And so it's a way to get from where they are to there. The way to get your first job is to show that you can take feedback. Let me give you an example that one of the things I I say to students, so I've, a lot of them have interviewed for something and I said, okay, you went, you made the interview, you got a formal interview, you didn't get the job. What did you do then? Mm-hmm. And the usual answer is, well, nothing. I, I right. had a beer or something because I wasn't happy I didn't get the job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I say what you just had was a bunch of people who formally evaluated you and compared you to other potential candidates and, and they chose somebody else. Mm-hmm. You love to know why. Yeah. What if you got back in touch with them and said, hey, listen, I know I didn't get the job. I'm, I'm not complaining about that. That's all really cool. But there might be a job down the line. Yeah. And, and so given you formally assessed me, was it possible I could talk to somebody with yeah. some information mm-hmm. that I could use to grow? So that does two things. One, if it's honest and you're going to use that to grow, cool. That's the right mindset to have. The second thing is it tells that company, yeah, this is a person that wants to grow and learn and, and get better. Yeah. And maybe there is a job around the corner. Right. And maybe they say, hey, why don't you come back in for, right. for this? Because mm-hmm. frequently, there's just a better candidate. I've been on the other side of a lot of hiring decisions, and I've wanted to hire three or four different people. Best case, that's why you're frequently brought back in for multiple interviews, is that they like you, but they're trying to figure out who would be the really best fit for this job. But also just simple courtesies and not transgressing in terms of social engagement are foundational. They're just disqualifiers if you show up late. It's like the old football coach on time is 15 minutes early. Tom Coughlin for the Giants. If you show up at nine o'clock for a nine o'clock meeting, you're at least five minutes late. And the same thing for a job interview. But these are all nonverbal signals, nonverbal feedback. Do you have any thoughts on how that 
changes in an online environment? There are certainly tools now, and, and I use one of them. There's a, a company called Top Hat in Toronto. When I teach with, with my full class in front of me, and my full class isn't 1,600, it's, right. it's about 400, and I'm videotaped and, and some watch yeah. online. Yeah. Um, but those that are there can use this response technology that's becoming pretty sophisticated, where mm -hmm. I can query the class in various ways, and, and they can respond to me. They also have a question chat going in the background okay. um, where they can upvote each other's questions. And so ah, every now and then I okay. can just take a breath, look at my phone and see, see. The questions that are on lots of people's sure. minds. Yeah. So things like that allow it to become a little more of a discussion, even in a large class mm -hmm. without the chaos that would happen if you know people were raising hands yeah. and doing whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's always a little different. But I am interested in creeping up on that line too. So as one example, let's go back to the interview because I love that as the ultimate test. We're having a version of an activity with, within our technology where students show up and they just see a video and they play that video and that video is somebody asking them a question. Mm -hmm. And then when that video stops, their mic opens and they have to answer that question. Mm -hmm. And it starts right from the stop of the, the question. So they have to answer it in real time. They don't know the question ahead of time. It's, it's randomly selected from a large pool of questions. Mm -hmm. and, and so they have to immediately try to answer. And then they peer assess each other's answers. So, yep. so I see how you answered. And maybe I think, oh, wow, he hit a point I should have hit. That, that's <laughs> okay. I see it. And yeah. that's part of the peer assessment is you mm -hmm. see all these different responses. Mm -hmm. But that's an example of how still in the digital world, we can get much closer to the real-time, face-to-face human yeah. experience, mm -hmm. and you can creep progressively there. And, and I think that's what we have to do with our students, because these skills, there's the notion that Vygotsky talks about his zone of proximal yeah. development. And, and I think a lot of our students feel like they're thrown into an interview and, and they don't know anything about mm -hmm. those skills they need to succeed in an interview. So it becomes something they feel like, I can't do, I can't pass this. It's too far outside of their yeah, zone. Right. Uh, and, and they end up feeling maybe helpless, maybe depressed, maybe whatever. Right. Uh, so that's where I think in the education system, we have them for four years. Right. It's like a gym in my mind where we yeah. have four years to train them mm -hmm. on these skills. If we do it regularly and in a structured yeah. way, and if we can creep them along that zone of proximal development and yeah. by giving them, you know, tougher and tougher tasks to meet, yeah. then we can put them in a position where that interview is within their zone. They, they may yeah. still learn, obviously, right. um, but, but they're ready for it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. It reminds me of the concept of desirable difficulty, where you want to be exactly. challenged enough, but you don't want to be like uh, Seligman's uh, depressed dogs who couldn't. Yeah. That's such a look. Story. Look it up when you want to be depressed and get a little bit of history. But uh, Seligman's uh, uh, should, should de depression. Please, you're the psychology expert. I, I I just dropped the the thought bomb. Yeah, yeah. So so this is a weird. I, I just find myself in this weird space where I. I, I thought of myself as the ed tech guy, but at the beginning of COVID, I, I've lectured on anxiety and, and such a lot. So I created right. a free online course yeah. just to let people understand what they're feeling. Right. And threw that out there. And that's all about anxiety. But there's a worry right now in COVID, the very close to Seligman, that that some of our anxieties could turn to depression. And, yeah. and that's worrisome. And the key that Seligman talked about was this notion of what he called learned helplessness. So yes. I hate the study too. I'm a dog lover. Yeah. You know, but I'll terrible. do it really carefully it's, because once you, yeah, once you hear it, it sticks in your mind and you can't, sure. you can't lose it. So he would have this chamber with two sides 
and a potential thing that could block it in the middle. And originally on, the dogs were trained in a very simple thing, that when a light went on one of the sides, shortly thereafter, the floor was going to get a little electrocuted, a little electric. Yeah. Not enough to actually cause any physical harm, but we all hate that feeling. Yeah, and yeah, dogs yeah. Feeling. Mm -hmm. So they very quickly learned when a light goes on, get to the other side of the chamber. Mm -hmm. That was step one. Step two is where it gets nasty and, and a little uncomfortable. They increase the barrier now to a level where the dog can no longer escape. Yeah. Uh, and so now the light comes on and the first few trials, the dog tries really hard to escape. Um, yeah. but it learns after a while that it can't. And it ends up curling up in the corner, light goes on, takes the shock and it just sits there. Yeah. Now the third phase that's really scary is when you now remove the barrier. Mm. And what you find is when you continue the procedure, even though the dog could escape, it fails to try. Yeah. Uh, and so that's the claim of learned helplessness. Yeah, yeah. My worry in COVID, and I don't, I don't know how anxiety versus these forces will play out, but is that when we feel like we've been trying everything, we've been wearing our mask, we've been doing whatever, yeah. and it's still coming back and mm -hmm. it's still hitting us. Yeah. It feels a little Seligman. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I do worry that we might reach a point which some people call COVID fatigue or, or whatever, where it's like, right. well, why bother? Why even bother doing these things? Right. Uh, and, and that could make the virus even worse. Yeah. It could potentially lead to depression, although there's other reasons to think we might not get depressed. And I haven't right. seen a lot of it. But. Right, right. But it's, it's vivid imagery there, and it, it is something that will stick in your mind. And I guess the idea is keep struggling, keep fighting, really, no matter what. And then also having the will to push is actually something we all need to muster and we can rely on each other to to help inspire and find that motivation. Can you talk also about motivation? Because motivation is a big part of, of teaching and, uh, and applying that to your experience. I'd love to get some of that perspective. Yeah, one of the very simple things I'll say is what we would really like as far as motivation. In the education system, one of the frustrating things is Marks are such a, a crippling force on education. And, and if anyone's read uh, Zen right. and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, mm -hmm. the dude in that book at one point decides he's not going to grade anything. Yeah, yeah. He's going to have this markless system. Yeah, yeah. And so much better for education. And I get that totally. Yeah. Uh, so students are being... Although, although real quick, uh, when you said yeah. Marx, I was thinking... Karl Marx. So I had to just catch up a little bit. You mean grades? Grades. Yeah, which is, again, just the, the U.S. Canada translation only jumps in from Marxism. Time to time. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I was like, uh, I wait, where are we going now? Yeah. No, but cool. Our whole system really orients students towards grades, which is an external reward. Yeah. Um, which was, there's something called the overcompensation hypothesis. When people are just focused on grades, they lose their internal motivation that really is powerful in learning. Mm -hmm. If you want to learn something, you know, there's two or three answers to that. How can we increase that internal motivation? Number one simple thing, if you really understand pedagogy, explain to students why you're doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. If you're putting them through some process, make them understand what's in it for them. And, and I don't mean grades. What's in it for them in terms of their ability to be successful after they graduate. And so that's a simple part. Just take the time to say, there's a reason you're doing this and yeah. here's what it is. And, and that helps. The other thing that I'm a big fan of is, is anything that makes the task you're asking them to do more what we call authentic. And 
an example, I'll, I'll give you an example of what I'm doing with my 1600 student class this term. We connected with the Ontario government, the province that we're in, and they of course have e-learning for a lot of K-12s and a lot of my students went through that in the yep. spring. Mm -hmm. and didn't really love their experience because it was e-learning 0.4 or right. something like it that. Was that, that, was the, that was the other stampede that happened was all these students who weren't ready were also dropped yeah. in there. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so what we said is we got the ear of those people in the government who are informing e-learning. And we said, can we do the following for you from our class? I'm going to give the class some projects where they really learn about the science of learning. And then I'm going to put them in groups and they are going to make a pitch. Here, here are some components that really should be in your future version of e-learning. Yeah. Uh, and now they, they do a bunch of uh, peer assessments so we can take those 1600 divided by five, yeah. so we've got 300 or some groups, nice. we them against each other, they assess each other, yeah. and that gives us a top 10. Nice. Uh, with the, who got a whole lot of feedback. Yeah. And those top 10 can now revise their work. Mm -hmm. And now the government agency looks at those top 10. It's almost like a hackathon kind of. It's yeah. like a hackathon. Yeah. And they pick the top three. The students are now engaged right from the beginning. Yeah. They think my idea could be something that affects my younger brother or my right. younger sister or right. et cetera. And so just doing that, making it, making their work have value. Yeah. So we don't. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a really important way to, to engage and motivate as well. Yeah. 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 It's, it, it's one of the, the positive. And again, it's tough to talk silver linings when the pandemic's been as rough uh, on really just about everyone and some folks really in particular. Yeah. But, but the idea that there is an opportunity to bring more relevance to your instructional design yeah. in that there's more stuff that we all know is shared amongst everyone across the globe. One of the places where we're all coming back and we can recognize that shared experience is in online learning. Yeah. How do you feel about that responsibility that you have to some extent? Like you're, yeah. 1600 is a big number and those are a lot of humans. Just the, the law of big numbers means there's a good chunk of humans there who are really going through a very difficult time. Yeah. How do you, how do you handle that load and how do you think about yeah. also managing yourself while you're really assuming this leadership position with that audience? I was really like struck hard with that now with an interview I had with a student this week that he had asked if he could um, meet with me and he was a Chinese student and he said, mm -hmm. getting into the university of Toronto was the dream of my life. And they had all this image that we can imagine the campus kind yeah. of life and everything. And then COVID hit. He never ended up coming to the campus yeah. at all. He's sitting in China, connecting on his computer, not having the clubs, not having the student interaction. Yeah. And, and he says, this is not what I imagined. What should I do? And, right. and we were having this whole discussion about, for some students, it makes sense for them to take a break right now yeah. um, in hopes that maybe in fall, it is a more normal kind of existence. Yeah. And this is really, it's really challenging to go from a K to 12 system where you have a teacher that's there to a higher ed system. Normally just a 1600 student higher ed system is a culture shock, but right. when it's now you on your own, yeah. it's especially. And so I think students have the challenge. They have so much distraction. They have procrastination to fight with, whereas they used to just be sitting in a chair and now it's up to them to be in the chair and nobody knows yeah. if they're not. Right. Uh, so I'm seeing it in my students and, yeah. and I'm trying to use it as an opportunity to teach them about anxiety and managing th this whole idea of taking control of yourself yeah. um, and being in charge. So to some extent, that's what I see a potential of here is yeah. that for mental health, we used to talk about mental health like it was something that some people struggle with. 
Whereas now we're all just living in every yeah. day. And, right. and right. the Sigma thing is ridiculous. It's right. like, you're not anxious. You're not paying attention. Like, yeah. yeah. Turn on the news for a while. <laughs> exactly. You should get anxious pretty soon. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. what is that? You know, why, why do you feel the way you do? And it turns out it's a very simple explanation. And then you can start thinking, okay, what are some ways I can control this and, and get myself feeling better? And there are some really clear strategies, none of which are therapy mojo. It's just simple. Yeah. Thing. Find, what's something in your life that really makes you think of nothing else? When you're doing that yeah. thing, your head is totally there. Right. Whatever that thing is, that's now medicine. And every now and then you should schedule some time in your day to pull your head away from everything else. Yeah. Um, especially if that thing, by the way, is singing yeah. or dancing yeah. or aerobic activity. Yeah. You know, those things actually make us feel in a ver very positive way. Mm -hmm. and so learning how to use the environment to put our mind in the place where we want it to be yeah. is, is a very useful skill. And, mm -hmm. and so I think, I hope this is an opportunity uh, for a lot of our students to it's a, it's a great challenge, but if we can help them through the challenge, and again, it's always, it always comes down to Vygotsky. It comes down to Vygotsky for the yeah. faculty too. Mm -hmm. you know, not, not expecting too much out of them from day one. Right. Letting them ease into this, what we sometimes call a three-year journey to get right. a course online really set up properly. Mm -hmm. But of course, the students are going through those three years and getting just okay educational experiences while they have all these other challenges. So, right, right. I really do feel for them. I think it's a really tough time to be a student. Yeah. It's also an interesting, when you were talking, it did make me think of the alternative too. Like when you, when you maybe hold back for a year versus the formal education, yeah. when you think about the, the tools and resources that are available online now, where if you were to find the best track through open resources and MOOCs yeah. and lectures that are even available on YouTube, but frankly, frequently, there is some optimal path out there. It's just not, it's yeah. never connected yet in a coherent way to make the most efficient paths available. But you got to imagine that's something that's probably going to come down the road. I, any thoughts yeah. on that? There, there's, there was a fantastic short story by Isaac Asimov back in the day, before the internet, before anything. But he had this conception of a student being curiosity driven and then they would sit in front of some box and I think he was imagining a television mm -hmm. but they would be able to go wherever they wanted to go and the education system all it suggested is you have to learn some stuff mm -hmm. you have to demonstrate some learning but it's completely mm -hmm. up to you to navigate and it's mm -hmm. almost like you're talking about so none of this existed in his day yeah yeah but he already knew that's the way people like to learn there's this notion called you know problem-based learning mm -hmm. where you learn best when when you're learning for a reason, there's something you're trying to solve. There's something yep. you want to understand. Mm -hmm. I, I did a TEDx talk where I, I like to play a bit of guitar and I, I br bring a guitar with me that I built. That right. sounds nice. So I bought the parts, I put them yeah. together, but, but that's how I wanted to learn about a guitar and what all the parts were. Mm -hmm. And that process, I learned so much about every piece of the guitar. It's, yeah. oh, I have to get a guitar neck. What guitar neck do I want? Right. What are my options? Why is one option better than another? And, right, and I right. go piece by piece. And it's very, I, uh, it's very zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance of yes. you. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> and, and I would, and that's how you really you start to care about all those little bits that you're learning and how they fit together, and, yeah. and you end up with a really deep knowledge structure. Mm -hmm. I think we need to get there. We, we see. There's a graph in, in a book called Stratosphere by Michael Fullan, an educational theorist here from Canada. And yeah. he looks at the school system, K-12, and enthusiasm for education. And in grades three and four, it's way up there. 
but then they hit about grade five or six and it just drops. Yeah. And, and when you look at that graph, it's something is not right. Right. Uh, learning should be fun. Yeah. Uh, and so I think getting back to that learning fun and can we do fun learning at scale? And I don't yeah. think, I think we used to think those two things were impossible, but I'm not sure they are. I think they're becoming more and more possible. Yeah. And, and I think that will be a good world when people can just show everything they've learned in a nice structured way and yet still not be forced into a sort of a factory version of yeah. education. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I've thus far failed in pushing the palindrome learning, which is fun while you're learning. Although I see there's some potential out there. If you can't have fun while you're learning, because it also makes it more salient, it's more emotionally resonate and if you can activate the, yep. the gets the, the frontal lobes you feel fun makes you feel safe and secure which is and really it's even important. more like the reptilian brain too because the amygdala and like your sort of your pleasure centers and i'm doing hand gestures for our listeners uh yeah, their gestures that they're, they're not to scale they're not actually reflecting anything about the brain but <laughs> uh, but yeah i would any thoughts on that aspect too do you get into any of the neuroscience and cognitive neuroscience is really interesting behavioral neuroscience those spaces are super interesting and it's one of the places where it feels like maybe we're about to make some breakthroughs on that front so any thoughts there well i, I certainly think the learning sciences psychology in general but the learning sciences in specific as our tools for watching the mind anywhere from like eeg where we can yeah electrical activity in the brain mm -hmm. to things like fMRI where you can literally look at yeah. what parts of the brain are involved we can certainly see so if we want to know does some variable have an impact we can see it like never before in fact there's a lab at McMaster University where they have this beautiful theater for lack of a better word but the performer who may, who may be a musical performer but could be a professor has an EEG cap on nice. uh, and they're doing their thing and oh. then within the audience there's chairs every five or six chairs or something where they also have an EEG cap on and so they can oh, put wow. their cap on and collect data huh. and so now we have streaming data coming in from yeah. say 50 students and a professor and you can look at things like if, if there's something that the professor does that, yeah. that is important what's the effect on him what's the effect wow. on the students yeah and so we can do some cool stuff and with respect to engagement for example you're highlighting fun and you're bang on fun is really good there's a i, I did a chapter where i use the analogy riffs getting yeah. back to guitar stuff yeah where it has to either be relevant the students see why it matters to them yeah or interesting which is a harder one to define sometimes but i can i'll, I'll come back to it in a sec fun yeah. or social those relevant, interesting, fun, or social, those yeah. are things that really create a positive learning atmosphere. Yeah. And interesting, just to give you a taste, I saw a guy do this so well. He was a physics prof, and I'm not naturally inclined to physics, but he gave some problem of a ball rolling over a surface and where is it going to end, and he had multiple choice, and he started the lecture by saying, okay, what do you all think? Vote. And we all voted, and he said, you're all wrong. And um, I'm not going to tell you why you're, why you're right. I'm going to give you this whole lecture. And by the end of the lecture, you should know what the right answer is. But by starting that yeah. thing and getting people like, what, what? I'm sure yeah. I was right. What the heck is wrong? Right. And so he piques curiosity, mm -hmm. which is making the subsequent lecture interesting. Yeah. And so learning a few of these little things can go a long way to yeah. keep students from looking at their cell phones. And, and I think yeah. that is, especially online, mm -hmm we got to look at our competition. It's almost back to the interview. You are one stream of information, but they're staring at a box that gives them all this other stream of information. And if right. you're not doing what all those other things are doing, which is you know pulling their attention back yeah. now and then and, and exactly. using various devices, then you're going to get lost. Yeah, uh, I've, I've so, always viewed it as almost like this, this existential 
struggle between learning and marketing. Yeah. But at the same time, they're not that different. Learning is more learner centered generally in terms of the objectives yep. where marketing is more for the organization who's trying <laughs> to try to develop a market, but yep. they're both, they're basically tactics that they improve your storytelling. They build uh, suspense. There are emotional returns really throughout the experience, yep. the way Pixar manipulates your emotions and yep. you appreciate it. There's an artfulness to storytelling and narrative and all of those things. How about in the storytelling piece? Because I know you're a lecturer. So yeah. we do a bit of a funny story that way. So at some point, I'd been lecturing for a while and I'd won some awards for lecturing. And I got this phone call from this, this company called The Great Courses. You might yes, you yes. know about them in the yeah. States. I'd never heard of them. And they're like, oh, you're going to come down and do a lecture series with us. And you'll just have checks show up every now and then. That sounds, that sounds crazy. You had me at checks come in all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they said, but the first thing is we have to teach you how to teach. Ooh. And it was interesting. Mm -hmm. so I thought you selected me because I was known as, as a great teacher. And they said, yeah, that, that's where we start. And now we teach you how to teach. <laughs> and so I had to go down there. Uh -huh. and, and the first thing I ended up creating a, a 24 lecture series on memory. Wow. But the first thing they endorsed, even in, in that day, was these lectures shouldn't be any more than a half an hour. Yeah. And they should, maybe even 25 minutes, half an hour, and they yeah. should have a beginning, a middle, and an end. They're mm -hmm. about one thing. It's a story that yeah. encapsulates it all. Bring in some human element. If you can tell us about a human yeah. uh, story that relates to what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I realized at that point that what I had been doing and what so many professors do is they walk in the class and go, blah, 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 yeah. oh, time's up, we'll continue tomorrow. And so they just stop wherever they stop and then right. they continue. And it's this 12-week yeah. story. Right. You cannot hang on to a 12-week story. Right. right. But they can hang on to a half an hour. And yeah. if you include even five or six important bits of information in that, yeah. they can get those five or six important bits. And that's enough. Yeah. Like, let them go and consolidate that and walk yeah. away and then bring them back and see if you can tell a new story. That yeah. Or, or end, end with a cliffhanger because of pupil Zygarnik. of, yeah, Zy uh, was a, a pupil of Vygotsky, yep. which, you know, and that's the idea that we remember incomplete things more than completed ones. But all these things to me come back to just a good foundation in some well-researched, well-established psychological knowledge that, that just needs to be translated into something that is relevant. Yeah. And, and then also, again, coming you, you back. You just to defined our lab, by the way. That, oh, really? That exactly. <laughs> Go out and find that knowledge that's out there in the literature, but is just sitting in some research journal. Yeah. Let's mobilize this. Let's, yeah. let's find a way to get it out there and used. Yeah. And it just feels like right now is this massive, unprecedented learning laboratory writ large has just launched. It's yeah. more in the heat of the moment. Are people even documenting what they're doing, paying enough attention People are just trying to get through their days, which is why I guess there is a community around centers for learning and teaching that may be far enough ahead of this, coming back to our Cinderella story as we get yeah. closer to, to, to the end. There's the, yeah. the, 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 once upon a time, this is the happily ever after part, maybe, is that if we could 
look to them a little more for guidance through this. Can, can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, and, and, and there's even maybe a, a meta level. So if you're at a big university, you, your center of teaching and learning is your friend. <laughs> you you right. may not know it yet, but if you get connected with them, they, there's so much knowledge, so much guidance, and not just the pedagogical knowledge, but yeah. also the knowledge about how to break it to you. you know, prioritizing what you should know and yeah. when you should know it so they don't overwhelm you. Yeah. So they're very good at, that's what they do all the time. For places that might not have that, or we're just seeing this generally, there's also a desire to go up another level. So there's a platform called 1HE, for example, hybrid. It's a UK based, but their goal, they're really laser focused now on this idea that there's new teachers or at least teachers new to e-learning. Let's get a bunch of resources up there and a community up there yeah. so that when you join, no matter where you are, you can share this knowledge uh, with each other. So we see some pockets of those and I'm hoping these pockets get together and join forces and so yeah. that there's one obvious place that's really you know presenting the information well. Yeah. And I think we are going to see a, a more of that. Yeah. And I hope we even see institutions say... Welcome to our institution. Here's a resource. You've got a free account over there. And if, if there's even a training program, I, this is my pet peeve. I'll, I'll go to my pet peeve here. Yeah. For at least most professors, half of our job is research. Half of our job is teaching. Graduate school is all about teaching us how to do research. Mm -hmm. We're not taught how to teach. Yeah. We're not taught the theory of teaching. Yeah. Um, and then we're just thrown into a classroom. And so I think it's, I think that's a shame. I think yeah. we should be expected to at least learn the basics, have an idea of the yeah. role that different things play from assessment to lecture presentation right. that we're talking about. Right. You know, they can ultimately find their own style. Mm -hmm. They should at least be introduced to the problem space and mm -hmm. some of the relevant things they should be thinking about when they figure out what works for them. Yeah. Uh, and so I think we'll formalize that a little bit more. I hope, I think we need to both for the faculty and especially for the students now. Yeah. We need to up our game. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the idea of teaching as a craft and online teaching in particular yeah. as a, a really critical component of that craft. Because there are people who are better at in-person teaching. There actually are people who are better at online. Yeah. And then when you were talking about class sizes, some skills and competencies and approaches work better in different online contexts. And then the same thing about peer-to-peer. -peer. But hopefully we'll continue to uh, evolve this conversation to have deeper dives into some of this stuff and try to develop a community that can have these types of conversations. Uh, it's just hard to navigate these days. It's difficult it to find the Sherpas, the senseis. I'm watching uh, Cobra Kai right now on Netflix, which is uh, <laughs> taking me back to the karate kid of, of my youth. But, uh, but we're coming up on time. Uh, Steve, this has been amazing. Thank you so much uh, for your uh, time here. Folks want to learn more about anything you're doing. You mentioned the MOOC that you just created. Is there anywhere that folks should go or they should look uh, to find out more about what we talked about? Sure. I've got a couple of courses on Coursera.org. So C-O-U-R-S-E-R-A.org. Yeah. And so one is just an intro to psych course if anybody wants to relive their intro to psych. But the more recent one is called Mind Control, which sounds nice. ominous. But Mind Control, Managing Anxiety Around COVID-19. So it's really about learning how to control your own mind. Wow. Uh, so that you can and we get a bunch of tips, a bunch of strategies. Yeah. Uh, and all kinds of stuff there. So yeah, people can go there. If there happens to be, I don't know if we reach any of this, but if there's police officers out there, mm -hmm. we've also created a course 
to help police officers manage their stress because wow. there's, a, yeah. there's a lot of stress there and we're doing one for healthcare workers now. So we're getting out there trying to help the community and give them wow. some tools. Yeah, I think about 140,000 have been through that mind wow. control course so far. So it's wow. pretty amazing. It's, yeah, it's you cool for some reason, there. you had me at mind control, Steve. I'm not, I'm not sure. I just, the I'm Jedi staying. version too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yoda keeps popping up in that Yeah, course. yeah, yeah. So before we let you go, I always love to ask my guests, what's emerging uh, anything new, exciting beyond what we just talked about that's capturing your imagination? You're someone who sees yeah. a lot of stuff. Uh, I'd love to get a little bit of perspective from you. Yeah, I, th I think the challenges we have now when we think student-centric are helping them engage. So you mentioned things like the Zygarnik effect, and I yeah. actually recommend things to students like, you know, don't watch the whole lecture and then stop. Watch 45 minutes of a 60-minute and stop there and then yeah. come back 15 and start the next one. Yeah. And it seems silly, but then you watch TV and they're constantly Zygarnik affecting us. Oh, my God. Mass singer, I pick whatever. Oh, commercials. <laughs> so if it works there, it works yeah. here. And so I think we all have to learn how to be more engaging, how to compete with the other media. Mm -hmm. um, but, of course, the other side, and I'm just going to echo what, what I said earlier, but I really do think it's the critical thing. We have to get serious about skills. And to the point where I think we have to – find ways to measure them uh, on the fly and accreditate them like we do knowledge learning. And, and I've got some ideas of how, how to do that. I've got a chapter where we talk about an idea that we then tested out with research. And I think that's where I'm, I'm hoping to see universities go. I also am pretty sure that we're going to see universities change the way they interact with the ed tech world. Uh, because of privacy and security concerns, they're going to have to get more central. They're not going to be able to let a prof just pick a technology. Yeah. And when they get more central, my hope is that they, A, become more friendly to pitches, that they have an attitude like guitar players do at the NAM festival. Show me what's out there. What could I be using? Yeah. And come, come pitch your thing to me if it's cool. But that they should also have a really firm pedagogical criterion. They should say, hey, listen, this is our goals. This is what we want to provide for our students. So come tell me about your tech or your idea, <clears throat> but attach it to those goals. Mm -hmm. I, I want to know how it's going to help us up our game. Mm -hmm. And if you can sell us that way, if you can sell us that you're going to help us make our students more successful, mm -hmm. then we want to hear it. And I think universities will be building toolboxes yeah. and then they'll be able to inform their faculty well. And I think that'll be part of the path of getting that sort of culture within a university of common knowledge developed. Mm -hmm. So I think that'll be a big trend we're going to see. Awesome. Fantastic stuff. Steve Jordans, J-O-O-R-D-E-N-S, Jordans. Yep. And once you Google that, Steve's well known enough that you'll find a lot of his stuff there. So that's also a good way to go. But the, uh, the mind control course on Coursera, I may need to do my homework, learn some mind control and have you back on to, to talk more about that. But Steve, it's wonderful having you. Thanks so much for joining. Cool. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And for our listeners, thanks to you, as always, for listening. If you like what you're hearing, tell your friends, subscribe, share it. We'll be back again soon on Trending in Education. Mm -hmm.